Well, hopefully you were able to join us last week. If you weren't, it was uh, quite a special time as we worshiped our Lord through baptism. We were able to baptize about 16 people last week, eight in each service, and it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It was just uh, completely wonderful. And one thing that if you were here and you were able to hear, and one thing that we experienced is that as each one went on and shared their story in their own way, it was very apparent that in their lives that God had uniquely placed certain people that had been involved in their lives along their faith journey, whether it was coming to know Christ or, or life afterwards, um, after uh, believing in Christ and, and growing them into maturity, uh, that the, the Lord had placed certain people in their lives. And I think for you and I, if we were to sit around and we were to share our own stories of our own faith journey, we would see and would have countless stories of the people that God had placed in our lives to move us along. And for myself, uh, and like a lot of you, one of the most influential people in my life uh, was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Uh, completely wonderful lady, just had such joy for life, had such zeal for the Lord. And um, you know, one kind of story to illustrate that a little bit is, you know, when Jamie and I were first dating, this May, Jamie and I will be married for about 15 years. Not for about, it will be 15 years. Um, but when we had hit that point in our dating relationship where I'm like, okay, this is it. She's the one. Here we go. I wanted to take her to go meet my mom and my stepdad. And they lived out in uh, western New Mexico. And so we flew, we went, went to go see him. It was over uh, the New Year's break of 96 to 97. And so we arrive, we come in, uh, we're there with my parents and we're having a great time. Well, New Year's Eve comes and it's just the four of us. And we're going to kind of be like, you know, we're going to be old here. We're just going to go to bed. We don't need to see the ball drop. You know, we don't need to see these things. Let's just go to sleep. And we'd been riding horses all day and we were extremely tired. And so we went to sleep. Well, about 1230, the phone begins to ring. And so I get up and, you know, Jamie's in this bedroom back here. My parents are in their bedroom and I'm on the couch. And so I'm coming in in this, this daze and I find the phone and I answer the phone. and I'm like, hello. And I hear this, well, happy new year, Jason. And I'm like, granny. And she's like, yes, happy new year. And so I'm like, well, that's great, granny. But, uh, you know, it's 1230 here and we're all asleep. And you know what? You're in Austin, which means it's 1.30 in the morning. What are, what are you doing awake at 1.30 in the morning? And she's like, well, you know, Jason, I was at church today. And they were talking about that they were having trouble finding adult volunteers to help with the senior high New Year's Eve party tonight. And so I was like, well, I stay up late and get up early. I can do that. And so she shows up and she has, she's like, I just had this wonderful time. You know, we have such wonderful teenagers. And I'm like, who says those two words together other than a grandmother? Wonderful teenagers. But, you know, so she was wonderful teenager. In fact, I got in this conversation tonight with this, with this one girl, so sweet, 15-year-old. And I was able to share the gospel with her. And she trusted and accepted Christ. And I was like, that's, that's great, Granny. And she's like, yeah, so we're going to finish cleaning up, and then I'm going to go home and, and go to bed. I, I am a little tired. And I was like, well, thanks, Granny. So I hung up the phone, went right back to sleep. It was, it was amazing. But, you know, even what, part of what makes that story amazing, too, is my grandmother was about five days away from turning 92 years old. She, um, 
but that was kind of a, a picture of her life. I mean, she was zealous for the Lord until the day that she passed. And she would pass about a year later from that, that time, a year and about two months. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, just her life. And as I grew older and I began to learn more about her life from, from a child, um, you know, you would think that she had this great, wonderful, awesome life, but it, it couldn't have been further from the truth. <laughs> My grandmother was born in 1905. And when she was about five years old, they lived in a one-room house. Um, and her father and her brother had come in from hunting and she was sleeping on a cot. And when she was sleeping, um, my uncle had placed, her great uncle had placed his gun along the wall. And while she was sleeping, it fell off, fell over and it discharged and it actually shot her through the hip. And, um, she almost didn't live. I mean, this is 1910 and, um, she, but she came through and she made it and she, but from that day forward, she always lived in pain in her hip and she always walked with a limp. And I was like, Granny, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, when I got older and kind of learned what happened, and she's like, well, you know, Jason, had I not done that, I wouldn't have learned to carve animals and stuff. And, you know, that's how she made her living as she got older. And she broke horses until she was 67 years old. But she always carved animals until then. In fact, if you go to a number of museums here in Texas, you'll see her carvings. And uh, it was a very talented woman. Um, my mother is the youngest of 11 children. She had, my grandmother had her first child at 15, and she had my mom at 45. I know, pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm the youngest of 42 grandchildren. So we've, I'm going to drop that comment. Um, we're the youngest of 42 grandchildren. But, you know, and my mom and her sisters, there were six girls and five boys. I mean, they were so, like, crazy joyful. It was unbelievable. I mean, we have family reunions, and they get into a room together, and you, you can't even stand to be in there. They're just so charismatic and loud, and you're just like, ah. My ears hurt, but you know, they had such fun. And, but on the flip side of that is my grandmother, uh, had to bury all five of her sons before she passed. Um, one, uh, in world war two and one from a car accident, you know, three from cancer. And I was just like, granny, you know, how, how do you, how do you work through this? Uh, my grandfather died when my mother was 12 years old because <clears throat> he was an alcoholic he drank himself to death, basically. And he was a very abusive man. And I just, but I looked at my grandmother's life and, and I'm like, Granny, how, how do you maintain your joy? How do you maintain such great zeal for the Lord through all these things? I mean, this, this is just unbelievable to me. Have you ever been there? My grandmother had, and she, she took me to the only place... <laughs> that she knew to took me is the place she always took me and she took me to the scriptures. And specifically when I was a teenager asking these questions, she took me to John 11. And that's where I want to take you to this morning. And if you would, go ahead and open up your, your Bibles with me and look at John chapter 11. For those of you who are looking up this verse electronically, I'm in the New American Standard. That's also the same version of the Bible that's underneath the chair that's in front of you. If you, if you want to go there, you see, my grandmother knew that it, it, it isn't accidental that we face overwhelming circumstances in our lives. And she knew that it was during those times that uh, the Lord would come and would step in and, and do things to, to, to grow us and to change us. She knew that it was in these times that uh, these very things that would happen, because it's not usually during those good circumstances in life that our faith grows and, and is strengthened, but it's usually during those pivotal times, those, those difficult times in our lives, 
the very times where we could flee and turn and run this way from God, that he steps in and does something to our faith to begin to grow and to begin to strengthen it. And she found the most vivid illustration of this in John 11, and this is where she took me, and I'd like to to read it to you this morning. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So as the story begins, there are three people mentioned. Uh, First, uh, we hear about Lazarus. He's the one that's sick. We hear about his sisters, Mary and Martha. But this actually isn't the first time that we've been introduced to Mary and Martha. Uh, We see them back in Luke chapter 10. This is where Jesus is coming through Bethany and Martha opens up the family home and Jesus comes in and he's teaching and and Martha's being the, uh, the gracious host. I mean, she is working and she's taking care to, to make sure that every detail is being followed, that, that things are being handled and taken care of, while Mary simply sits at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes to Mary and, I mean, comes to Jesus and says, look at her, look at what she's doing, and, and I'm doing all this work. You know, Jesus, make her do something. And Jesus gently helps correct her and her thoughts. But then we come to Lazarus. Uh, you know, we really don't know much about Lazarus. And we know that he's the brother of Mary and Martha, but not much is said about him to this point. But the scriptures are very clear to communicate the depth of the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. When the messengers come and they deliver the message to Jesus, they don't say, Lord, hey, guess what? Lazarus is sick. You remember him? He's, he's the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, they don't need to say that. No, they come to him and they say, behold, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And they knew that Jesus would know who they were talking about. The scriptures are very explicit about their relationship. And that's what makes verses 4 through 6 a little bit harder to read. Look at verse 4. It says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Glory. That's interesting. So that maybe glorified by it? Well, that's, that's, what's going on here, Lord? Well, Jesus is creating this category right here. And what he's saying is, guys, I want you to understand that things like this, like sickness, illness, death, disease, can actually be used for the glory of God. Well, I mean, that's not the kind of glory of God category that I want to participate in. <laughs> the, the one that I want to be in is the one that says, I, I, I win the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> and, and, and the reporters come to me and they stick a microphone in my face and they're like, Jason, great season, unbelievable. Nobody thought that this would happen. I mean, how did you do it? And, and I, just, I just say, you know, guys, I just want to give all glory to Jesus Christ and God for this season and what's happened I mean, that's the kind of give God the glory category that, that I want to be in. And Jesus says, well, you know, that, that, that's one of the categories. <laughs> but I also have a different one. 
And truthfully, it's, it's one that's a little bit more effective. It's the kind where you find yourself in this moment and you say, God, I need you to step in here because I have this, I don't know what I'm going to do with it kind of situation. And if you don't come in and if you don't step in now, I don't know what's going to happen. But Jesus says, and he looks and he says, I'm going to allow this to happen. And I'm going to use it for my glory. Look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, just in case we missed it. He loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus does exactly what we expect him not to do. I mean, I would expect that when the messengers came and they said, hey, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick, that what Jesus would have done is he would have dropped everything that he was doing and he would have rushed off. And he would have gone to Lazarus, and he would have gone to Mary, and he would have gone to Martha. But that's not what he does. I mean, you know, Jesus doesn't just get the word that someone somewhere is sick, or that Lazarus is sick, but he gets the news that, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. And he turns and he looks at the messengers and he says, guys, thank you. Thank you for that information. And he turns and looks at the disciples and he says, guys, go, go ahead and have a seat. We're going to stay here just, just a little bit longer. And he did nothing for two days. Have you been there? Where you found yourself on your knees in front of the Lord and, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. And if you don't step in right here, right now, and in this way, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and you're pouring your heart out. <laughs> but it's like he's doing nothing. Our daughter, Anna Beth, when she was born, wasn't uh, but a few months later that we um, realized through a number of things that were happening that she, um, her kidneys and her heart were not working properly. And it caused us to have to run through a bunch of testing and procedure type things and things that we were having to do and I mean, it caused us a lot of angst, but not only did it do that, but it put us in a big strap financially and also with insurance because my insurance wasn't that great. And so we found ourselves in this position that, I mean, I needed to go get a second job. So I went to work for UPS, which has great benefits and pays okay. And so (laughs) I went through this period in my life that uh, I would wake up at 2.30 in the morning and I would go unload trucks for UPS from 3.30 to 7.30. And then I would go over to Baylor Hospital, which is next to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and I would take a shower, and then I would go work and attend my PhD classes at Dallas Seminary from 8.30 to 5.30. And then I would come home, and I would help Jamie feed the kids and bathe them and put them to bed, and then we would have about an hour together, and then I would go to bed at 9.30, and I would do the same thing over and over again for a while. And people, like maybe some of y'all are thinking right now is, how in the world did you do that? And for those of you who are fathers, well, you know how you do that. (laughs) You know, when your kids need something, you just do it. You know, my wife needs something, I just do it. But also because I'd wake up at 2.30, and the first thing I would do is I would go into Annabeth's room next to her crib, and I would just sit there, and I would pray, (laughs) Lord, please, (laughs) heal her body. (laughs) Lord, please, step in right now. 
And after test after test and thing after thing, it just seemed like it wasn't happening and it was for years. And it felt like he was literally doing nothing. Have you been there? Verse 7. It says, Then after he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, um, you know, if you look back up the end of chapter 10, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So now Judea is close to Bethany, okay? And they had just been there. That's what the end of John 10 is. They'd just been there, and the Jews had tried to stone him. And then he gets kind of away, and they try to, to grasp him and take him captive, but he eludes them. And that's now where we are in this story. So they're thinking, you know, Jesus, um, maybe, not, maybe going back there is not such a great idea. You know what? In fact, Jesus, as we've been with you, you you've healed people without even being there, without even being present. So we're thinking that in the life of Lazarus, well, this might be a good time to to do one of those things where we just kind of heal from the distance and then we can just stay here and be safe. So it's clear that they don't get it. So the Lord begins to explain to them again, guys, we need to go. The work of the Lord needs to be done. Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go so that I can wake him up. And they still don't get it. They're thinking, well, you know, Lord, guess what? If, if he's sick, then, you know, it might be good for him to rest. You know, the best thing to do when you're sick, Jesus, is to have a little sleep, you know, and then maybe his fever will break and he'll be all better and he'll recover and we can just stay right here where things are nice and safe. You know, we don't need to go and it's clear that they don't get it. And so Jesus has to step in and he makes it very clear Look at verse 14. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. What? Now I'm sure there's confusion going on. We're like, well, wait a second, Jesus. Lazarus is dead? You knew knew that he was dying? And you told us to sit down and we stayed here even longer? I mean, Jesus, what's going on? This is not just some stranger, some enemy somewhere, but this is the one whom you love. And we sat and we stayed. And now Lazarus is dead? So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us all also go, so that we might die with him. For your sake. I'm glad I wasn't there. What? Jesus, what's going on? And, but then he inserts that, uh, in the Greek, it's called the henna clause. It's that so that. Meaning that when we see that, I'm going to give you the reason. And I'm going to tell you what's going on. 
And so Jesus is very clear with them, and he says this. He says, guys, I delayed going to Lazarus' aid so that I could do something in your life so that you might believe and grow in your faith. Lazarus' death presented an opportunity for him to demonstrate the power and the presence of God in his life and to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And now they get it. (laughs) Or at least Thomas does. Thomas understands. I mean, oftentimes when we think of Thomas, what do we think of? Well, we think of doubting Thomas. (laughs) But here, Thomas gets it. Thomas understands that when Jesus says, hey, if anybody's going to follow after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross. Well, Thomas understands what that means because what does the cross mean to a Christian, to a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, the cross means suffering. It means death. It means that following Jesus isn't going to be easy. And so when Jesus says, I got to go so the work of the Lord can be done, Thomas says, all right, guys, well, let's go so that we can die with him also. I'm with you, Lord. And so they go, and as they go, they come, and Martha meets them. Uh, Martha greets Jesus, and the disciples are coming much like she greeted Jesus in Luke chapter 10. She comes, and her mind is wrestling, and she has questions. And so we look at verse 20. And it says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Jesus, it's your fault. Jesus, I have seen you heal strangers. I have seen you heal enemies. I've seen you heal people that you you care nothing about, but the one that you love, (laughs) you didn't come. In fact, not only did you not get here fast enough, but you wait. You waited. (laughs) I expected you days ago. Have you been there? Martha is conflicted. Because on the one hand, she's angry for Jesus not coming through in the way that she thinks that he should have. But, but on the other hand, she's affirming that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, the one who has power over life and over death. I mean, how many times do we do the same thing with the Lord? Lord, if you had been here, Lord, Lord if you had come through in the way that I expected you to come through, Lord, if you, if you would have answered my prayer just a little bit earlier, if you would have answered my prayer just, just a little bit differently, the way that I expected, you see, we have this very subtle way of obligating an infinite God with our if-onlys. And that's exactly what Martha does. If only. If only you had been here. If only you'd come through in the way that I expected you to. On the one hand is belief, but on the other hand is conflict, and she's still wrestling with him. Have you been there? And notice this. This is what's so wonderful and so beautiful about Jesus. This is the way that he responds to her. 
Jesus deals with her tenderly. And he doesn't offer any rebuke. He doesn't express his disappointment. I mean, he doesn't look at her and say, Martha, what are you thinking? I'm Jesus. I'm the, I'm the one who's in control of everything. How can you question what I'm doing? But he doesn't do that. He listens. And he empathizes with her. And he responds to her with a statement that is so loving and it's so definite that she doesn't even recognize what he's saying. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha, Martha, I know that you're struggling. (laughs) But Martha makes the same mistake that you and I often make. We can be so busy presuming upon the Lord about what he should be doing that most of the time, oftentimes, we miss exactly what he is doing. And Martha does this same thing. Martha failed to understand what Jesus was saying to her because she already believed something. She heard his words, but then inserts her own meaning into what he's saying. So she's sitting there and she says, yeah, I know Jesus. Here's my theology textbook. I know on the last day that we're all going to rise up and you're going to come and we're going to gather and the saints of old and, and all of us will be together and we'll be in heaven and there'll be this great reunion and it will be wonderful and you know we'll get Paul's autograph and it's going to be great. But see, she missed it. <laughs> because Jesus is not talking about general theology. He's talking about Lazarus. He's speaking into her own personal life and meeting her right where she is. But because she is so presumed on him about what he should be doing or what he should have done, she missed what he is doing. And so he goes on in verse 25. says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he looks Martha in the face and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And this is the theme all the way through the Gospel of John. John 20, 31 is the thematic verse for the whole book. These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who is the life. He is the one that has the authority to give life, to give eternal life. He is the resurrection. He is the one who has power over death and can give life. And who does he give it to? Well, he gives it to all who believe. Martha, do you believe this? In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. But see, Martha is still thinking in general terms. (laughs) She's not thinking about Lazarus. So she leaves and she goes to Mary and she says, Mary, Jesus is coming and he's looking for you. And so Mary goes out and she goes to meet Jesus as well. Except she comes with a different temperament. We don't see it so much in her words as we see it in her actions. In fact, she uses the exact same words that Martha uses, but it's through her action that we see that she's expressing them differently. Look at verse 32. It says, Therefore, when Mary came 
where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha came with her mind questioning and wrestling. Mary came with her heart broken and hurting. Have you been there? She wept and she cried. And Jesus, like he did with Martha, responds to Mary right where she is. Look at verse 33. It says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the English Bible. He was deeply moved and he was troubled. And what? Jesus as, as the weeping God? I mean, Jesus as, as the, the eternal son of God, you know, we, we, we don't really anticipate this from him. I mean, we look at Jesus and, and, we, and, we, and we're enamored with his teachings. You know, and, and sometimes we, we secretly enjoy it when we see him kind of sticking it to the Pharisees. You know, and we sit in awe of the, the miracles and the things that he does. But Jesus... As a weeping God, we don't necessarily have a category for that sometimes. But the scriptures are very clear that yes, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God. But as John 1.14 tells us that he's the Word made flesh. He is also fully human. In fact, he is more complete in his humanity than you and I are. Because his humanity is unscathed by sin. Jesus is able to deeply step in and identify with you and your struggles and your sorrows and your grief and where you are in life, not just because he is God, but because he is fully human as well too. In fact, he understands those struggles and those sorrows and those griefs even deeper than you possibly can because he is unscathed by sin. You and I will recognize, you know, as we grow older, there are things that when we are children, that so perplex us and, and, and were so repulsive to us. But as we grew older, it's almost like they became natural to us. Because we we're encumbered by sin and we lived in a world wrecked by sin. You know, to, to, to live lives that are sinful, well, that's natural. <laughs> to live lives that are holy, well, that's supernatural. And Jesus, because he's unscathed by sin, is able to step in and to meet you right there. And he knows what's going on. And he's deeply moved because he's in this world and he's looking and he's seeing death. And he knows that death was not part of the original plan. Not only spiritual death, but also physical death. Those are both things that came because of the fall. And so he's here and he, and he sees Martha weeping and he sees Mary, Mary weeping and he sees those that follow them and they're weeping. And because of his unscathed humanity, he is deeply moved. And he steps in and he meets Mary right where she is as well, too. You know, I love this part here because, you know, here's Jesus who can perform miracles. And instead of rushing in and doing something big and performing some miracle, he stops. 
and he identifies and he feels exactly what Mary and Martha are feeling just in the same way that he stops with us and he feels exactly what you felt when you stand beside the grave of a loved one or, or God hasn't come through in the way that you've expected him to and, and you're deeply disappointed and you're hurt. Or when your prayers weren't quite answered in the way that you thought that they were supposed to be answered. And he steps in and he identifies with our struggle. Have you been there? Well, when he does this, it causes those people who are watching to respond in two different ways. Look at verse 36. And so it says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So some of them are impressed with Jesus' emotions and they see what it's communicating and they see that he deeply loved and he cared for Lazarus. Why others are sitting there and they're questioning and they're saying, well, here was this man over here who was blind and he was a complete stranger to Jesus and Jesus returned his sight. Well, well, couldn't this same Jesus, could he not have stepped in and kept Lazarus, he whom you loved, from dying? And they're questioning. And they didn't know. I mean, it's this age-old conundrum that we have where we pit God's goodness against his power. Where if he can do it, then why doesn't he do it? Right now, in my life, in the way that I think that he should do it. Have you been there? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So Jesus arrives and he's deeply moved again. (laughs) Well, why? Well, because he sees the death, which is not part of the original plan. He sees those who are weeping and are brought to tears and he sees the grief and the sorrow that the death brings and he's moved by it. But he is also moved by the lack of faith. Guys, you've seen what I've done. You know where I've been. <laughs> you've seen the miracles. You've heard them. And you, in fact, you just talked about them, and, but you still don't believe. And so he continues on in prayer in verse 41. And it says, you know, so they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, <laughs> I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Twice he has said, I'm about to do something so that you might see the glory of God. And now twice he has said that I'm about to do something so that you may believe. And then in verses 43 through 46, it happens. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. See, truth is either accepted or it is denied. We're either for God or we're against God. We're either a child of God or we're an enemy of God. There's no in-between. And so in verse 45, we see that those who came along with Mary and they saw what Jesus had done, well, they believed in him. While others left and they went off to find the Pharisees and to tell them what Jesus had done. I mean, not even raising Lazarus from the dead convinced them. Instead, they went off and they went to the Pharisees and they said, look at what he's done. Another miracle. I mean, he did it again. There's no, whoa, I can't believe it. Did you see that? This man was dead and he was in the grave. See, it's very important because numerous times throughout this, we see them mention four days. Four days is actually a very important part of this story. Because if you look back and you read uh, rabbinic history and uh, Jewish history, you see that there is something significant in that. Because they believed that when a person died, the spirit still hung around for three days, waiting to try and see if it could re-enter the body. So Jesus specifically waits four days so that they would have no excuse. <laughs> so that they couldn't say, well, you know, the, the spirit was there. I guess found its way back in. And so here he came up. They can't say that. Jesus specifically waits four days so that they can see the glory and the power of God, but they, they fail to see it. And so in verses 47 through 51, the the chief priests and the Pharisees, well, they kind of have this emergency meeting because they got a problem. Well, and the problem is this. What are we going to do with Jesus? That's the problem that they have. You know, he did another miracle and and he did it right in our backyard. I mean, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't ignore it. And they had to do something quickly or else something was going to happen. If you look in verse 48, it says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. <gasps> and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So now their opposition, well, it, it now crystallizes into this plot, this ongoing plot to kill Jesus. Well, why in the world would they want to do that? Well, because they're sitting back and they're assessing the situation and they're thinking to themselves, you know, yeah, we, we've seen all that he's done and all these miracles and these things that are happened, the things that he said, and, you know, he just raised somebody from the dead, but, uh, but they couldn't believe in him. I mean, it, actually, it's not really that they couldn't believe in him. It's that they wouldn't believe in him. See, it wasn't a problem with the intellect. It wasn't a problem with the mind. It was a problem with the heart. They recognized the significance of Jesus' miracles while they were mounting up. But they rejected him because they stood to lose everything that they held dear to them. They stood to lose their power. They they, they stood to lose their position. They stood to lose their place in society. 
Yeah, you know, Jesus may come in and he may be able to perform these miracles and do these great things. And he may even step in and raise this man from the dead. But, you know, we just can't believe in that. Because, you know, if we do, these people are going to be saved. But we'll lose what we, what we have. And even more than that, they feared the Romans more than they feared God. Because, yeah, he could do all these great things, these miracles, is raising somebody from the dead, but, I mean, surely he can't handle the Romans. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. And then we get down to verse 57, which concludes this, and it says this. It says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And this ends this incredible story. Well, so what do we do with it? Well, I think it leaves us to answer two questions. The first one is this. At some point in our lives, we are all at the end of verse 44. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we going to do with Jesus? Jesus, like he did for them, left it very clear what he was doing. Very clear that he was there. See, because either truth is either accepted or it's rejected. So you must ask yourself, what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you believe? See, at one point, this world was created perfect. Everything in it. And man and woman, Adam and Eve, they stood in perfect relationship with God. But through their own disobedience, Sin entered into the world, and with it brought death. Not only spiritual death, but it brought physical death. And completely separated us from God. And that's a problem for every man. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory of God. Every single man, every single woman, myself included, and everyone in here. The problem with that is Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. Eternally separated from God, physically, spiritually, in every way. But God in his great love, John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, the one who has the power to give life and to give eternal life. All we simply need to do is recognize that our sin separates us from God. And that Jesus Christ came down to this earth, fully God, fully man, died on the cross and rose again from the dead to forgive us the penalty of our sin. And all we simply need to do is believe. What are you going to do with Jesus? The second question is this. Am I willing to follow Am I willing to follow? See, Thomas got it. He knew that following Christ, being a Christian, one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, is not going to be easy. That we will face pain, and we will face strife, and we will face suffering in this world. But he was willing to get up and to go, and to follow the Lord, and do what he was called to do, because he knew that Jesus is much better than anything he had in this life. 
Are you willing to follow? You know, I admit that sometimes I become frustrated with God more than I should. You know, that I, I sit and I pray and I, I try to pray with pure motives and, and, and to not be selfish. Yet he frequently chooses to allow Vince to unfold in my life in ways that I do not comprehend. His timing is rarely what I would expect of a God who loves his people. But his ways and his timings, they, they challenge me more often than I wish. Yet when I read the story of Martha and Mary, I take comfort in knowing that I'm not alone. And me, like them, come to Jesus fully expressing what's on my heart. Whether it's broken, whether it's hurting, whether I'm angry, whether I'm in dismay. And just like he did with Martha and Mary, Jesus steps in in my life and he meets me right where I am. Even in the times when I feel like he's doing nothing. These are the things that my grandmother taught me that day. She set me down as she, she concluded John 11 and she looked at me and asked me those same questions. Jason, at some point in your life, you have to decide what are you going to do with Jesus? He's made it clear. You've read his word. You've seen the miracles. In fact, you, you, you have some of the benefit that these people in the Bible didn't even have. You, you know the end. And you'll have to decide What are you going to do with Jesus? Do you believe? And then you also have to ask yourself, are you willing to follow him? Despite if he doesn't come through in the way that you think that he should. If he doesn't answer your prayer the way that you wanted him to. Even when you don't see it and you don't get it, are you willing to follow him? Because Jason, my answers to those questions are yes wholeheartedly. And that's why until the day I died at 93 years old that I pursue him with such zeal. Because regardless of the way that I think that he should come through, when he doesn't do things the way that I see it or the way that I think he should, I've learned that God has a better time and has a better way. And sometimes he is gracious to me and he lets me see that down the road. (laughs) That not making that decision or not this not coming through like it was, I I see it. And Jason, I still have some questions for him though. But that's okay. Because I've seen him come through in my life in so many other ways and in the lives of others over thousands of years. And I have to remember that God's perspective is eternal It's not temporal. Because you, like me, probably get focused a lot right here on the here and now and what's going on right here. And if I'm to be honest, at most I allow myself to think about the 50, 60, 70, whatever years, whatever days I may have on this earth. And I fail to see God from an eternal perspective. God's been about it, his work for thousands of years. And he's been drawing and pulling to his people to him throughout time. And in the end, he will come and he will reign and he will make all things new. Ourselves included. And we will be unscathed 
by sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. Because the scriptures are very clear that in the end, our God wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I admit, I confess, that oftentimes I come to you and I put my obligations upon you. That I think that you should come through in my life in the ways that I think that you should. And in the time that I think that you should. And Lord, I, I've, because I do that, I so presume upon what you should be doing that I miss what you're trying to do in my life and the lives of others. Lord, please help me to step back and see you from an eternal perspective to the extent that I can and not just in my own wants and my own desires. Lord, thank you that you have been so clear to us through your word. Lord, that you are the Son of God, the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die on the cross to forgive our sins. And Lord, by simply believing in what you have done for us, that we can have eternal life with you. Lord, thank you for not dealing with us sternly when we have doubt and when we are angry and when we hurt and when we're broken. Thank you that you don't rebuke us. Thank you that you step into our lives tenderly with such love and such care. Lord, that you meet us right where we are, even when we fail to see it. Lord, thank you for your, your great care for us, so much so that in 1 Peter 5, you tell us to lay our cares and our concerns upon you because you so deeply care for us. Lord, may we answer those questions in our lives. What will we do with Jesus? Let not another day, another moment go by that we don't ask that question and do something about it. Allow us to answer the question with boldness, am I willing to follow, even when I don't understand and even when it hurts? Am I willing to follow after you? Because regardless of what happens, what you bring and what you are is so much more than anything we have in this life. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you for being here with us today. I look forward to seeing you next week.